Welcome to the Gather Houston podcast. We are a Christian community practicing the way of Jesus in all parts of life and for the good of all people. Thank you for joining us today. So uh, if you know me, you might know that I don't have a ton of social anxiety. Um, I like meeting new people. I like chatting. I even kind of like small talk. Like I kind of, I kind of enjoy the back and forth of small talk a little bit. Uh, But I, I do have one question that I'm always kind of anxiously waiting for. Right. I'm usually kind of worried and waiting for uh, someone to eventually ask me, uh, so what do you do? And uh, I've thought and said out loud on the way to social events to Katie, things like, uh, maybe I'll say I'm a teacher. I teach things. Or uh, now I'll say, maybe maybe I'll just say I work for you. Maybe I'll just say I work for Katie. I mean, Katie's my boss. Checks out. Uh, That works for me. Uh, But I don't. I tell the truth, uh, usually. And uh, I'm not uh, anxious about that question because I'm ashamed of you. I'm, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of our community. And I'm not ashamed of God. I don't have I don't I don't, I don't have that issue. I had an unashamed uh, bracelet for a little while, so I'm good on that front. Um, but I am uh, I am kind of embarrassed of what Christians, church people, have done to Jesus, and in the name of Jesus. You know, in so many ways, and in so many places, the church has demoted and diminished the work of Jesus and the way of Jesus. And in so many places, in so many ways, the name of Jesus has been leveraged for political power, for various ideologies, for financial gain, for cultural status. We have used the Lord's name in vain. We've made Jesus into a mascot for our ideology, instead of allowing Jesus to be the founder of a revolution of love. So when I tell people I'm a pastor, I I usually feel the need to follow it up with something like, but I'm not that kind of Christian. My church aren't those kinds of people. And today we're starting a four-week conversation on the book of Colossians. And the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church in Colossae. It's a group of people he's never met before. Paul's in prison as he writes this letter, and he's received a report while he's in prison from a man named Epaphras about what's happening in this church. So Paul writes this letter to the church to do a couple things, right? He tells them, good job. He encourages them. He says, I heard you have been loving your neighbors. He says, good job. And he encourages them not to give in to the social pressures to diminish the work or leverage the name of Jesus. And I think it's exactly what we need to hear. So we're going to do four weeks in Colossians. We're going to keep it pretty simple. Our last uh, couple months have been kind of heavy. So we're just going to keep these messages really simple because that's what Paul does. And and as he is uh, kind of encouraging this church to not diminish the work of Jesus, he starts in Colossians chapter 1 by just reminding the church who Jesus is. And so that's what we're going to read today. That's what we're going to be. This is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. This may be familiar to you. Paul writes, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. 
For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. There's a lot there. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a poem and it is poetic and there's a lot of words, uh, but there's a few things I want to kind of zoom in on and then we'll zoom out and, and talk about the whole kind of point over all of it. So uh, Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. And this is a royal claim about Jesus, right? He's, he not, this isn't a claim about whether uh, Jesus is a created being or not. Uh, it's a claim about Jesus's royal status, right? Think Game of Thrones. You are the firstborn. Right, the, the royal line flows through you. And he, he's the king of all creation. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Right, which things? All things. And Jesus is divine, Paul says, that God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus. But do you hear from Paul here? Jesus is divine, and his divinity is holding all things together. That the divine energy of Jesus is somehow mysteriously flowing between everything, that it is the glue of reality, right? Paul is a mystic, right? That the divine energy of Jesus is what's flowing between everything, holding us all together mysteriously. It's very mystical. And we're not going to get all the way into it, but in verse 21, because it's here, Paul says, you were alienated and were enemies. We've heard this narrative about our relationship to God. You were alienated and you were enemies. But just look at this phrase right here. You were alienated and you were enemies in your minds. Right? The, the alienation from God, the separation, it exists only in our minds. We weren't alienated in God's mind. We were alienated in our minds only. It's just, a, it's just um, our perception of our separation from God. I'll just let you sit with that. We're not going to get all the way into it. But then verse 18 is a nice summary of Paul's point here. Right? So we zoomed in on a few things. Big picture here. Paul says, verse 18, in everything, Jesus has supremacy. Because of the firstbornness and being the head of the body and holding all things together, Jesus sits above everything else. Jesus is supreme. Jesus has preeminence. Everything else is second at best. But Jesus is first. Jesus is, stands above and over our political ideologies. Jesus stands above and over our versions of success or cultural status. Jesus stands first and over our understanding and interpretation of the Bible. Jesus is supreme over everything, even scripture itself. And most of, the, most of the time when I've thought about this passage, I've read it for myself lots of times. I've written about it. I've heard lots of sermons on it. Uh, these ideas about the supremacy of Jesus have been connected to either certainty or worship. So it's been, hey, you can be sure about Jesus. You can be certain about Jesus. He is the firstborn of all creation. In him, all things hold together. You can be certain. You don't have to have any doubt about this. Total certainty. Or uh, this is why we worship Jesus. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. We need to worship this guy. And both of those are um, fine conclusions. I'm not knocking that way of, uh, of thinking. But I was reminded this week that Jesus didn't say, if you love me, you'll worship me. He didn't say, if you'll love me, you'll be sure about my divinity. 
He didn't say, if you love me, you'll never doubt me. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. This supremacy isn't about our certainty, and I don't really even think it's primarily about worship of Jesus. Living into this supremacy means that the way of Jesus, the instructions of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the commands of Jesus, those are first in our life. Right? It's embodiment more than it's certainty. Right? It's embodying the way of Jesus more than it is being sure about Jesus. It's more imitation than it is adoration, right? The way of Jesus, the, the union with God, the injustice interrupting, the outcast loving, the sinner forgiving way of life, that way of being in the world is meant to be first and above everything else in our life. The freeing of the captive and the loving your enemy and the turning the other cheek and the turning over tables, all of that is meant to be supreme, It's meant to be preeminent over everything else. It should be that which we filter the rest of our life through, that way of being. We can't settle for Christian-ish ideology. We say we're going to create our own worldview, our own political ideas, our own version of success, and we'll sprinkle in some Jesus-y language, a Christian-flavored way of life. We can't give in to the temptation to demote and diminish Jesus, to leverage Jesus for our own version of success. The call of Colossians chapter 1 is that we embrace and embody the way of Jesus in such a way that everything else comes second. It's full devotion to the work of Jesus. That all of it, in all parts of our life, the way we operate, the way we parent, the way we partner, uh, the way we work, that everything would be filtered through the way of love and humility, of inclusion and of justice. Doing what Jesus did, following the commands of Jesus, living the Jesus life, right? This is... um, This is WWJD, all right? And it seems like it should be the baseline of Christianity, right? If we're followers of Jesus, then it just feels like the baseline of it should be do what Jesus did. But um, the research is in. (laughs) The research is in. And Christians, at least Christians in America, in our context— have largely decided that living like Jesus isn't the most important part of being Christian. In in a lot of places, we've decided that right belief is more important than right living. That having the right answer is more important than being high character. We've prioritized having a defense of our faith over living a faithful life of kindness and humility of forgiveness and in love. And I'm not making this up and I'm not trying to demonize any particular group of people. Uh, There was a survey of uh, church attending Christians. So active Christians. And um, they surveyed equally uh, those who considered themselves self-identified as conservatives and those who self-identified as progressives. So the equal number of conservative and progressives. uh, These are active church-going Christians. And 75% of the active Christians surveyed regarded Jesus's call to love your enemy as immoral. They said it's wrong. It's wrong to love your enemy. 75% of active Christians. 
And those who, can, who, who self-identified as conservatives largely claimed that loving your enemy was, uh, was compromising your morality. And then those who self-identified as progressive said that loving your enemy felt like being complicit with injustice. So it was either a compromise or it was complicity. They didn't take into account what Jesus actually said. The researcher, the person who did that work, the researcher, his name is Dan White. He said it was so discouraging because these Christians knew the verse. They did. They're active church-going Christians. They knew the verse from Jesus. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemy. They knew the verse, but they were more devoted to their own ideology than the way of Jesus. They were more devoted to their own ideology than the way of Jesus. I'll say it again. We have demoted and diminished Jesus in order to prioritize our own ideologies and versions of success. Jesus cannot just be our mascot. We are called, like the early church, to put the way of Jesus, the Jesus way of being in our world, as first in our life, over all of our ideologies, over our version of the American dream, over everything, and everything the way of Jesus has supremacy. And so for you in your faith, have you prioritized right belief over actually practicing the way of Jesus? Or have you prioritized your own ideologies over the way of Jesus? And for you, uh, do you think you have a good understanding of the way of Jesus? Right? Not a good understanding of what, um, of what Christians would say it is, not a good understanding of what your grandma told you it was, which I love your grandma, I think she's great. But do you have a good understanding of the way of Jesus, what, what Jesus actually said and did? And I would just challenge you to just read, read a gospel. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Mark is the shortest one. Uh, John is the most um, unique. You, you can just pick one. Read it. See what Jesus said and did. Do you have a good understanding of the way of Jesus? And then how could you devote yourself to this radical way of being? To the radical way of being. And I know that in, in, in big picture wise, it probably feels overwhelming. I understand. There's a lot of stuff Jesus did. And you're like, am I supposed to uh, eat fish and loaves primarily as the way of Jesus? Like, what's the deal here? So maybe... Um, you know, you could start small with just a practice or two. You know, the, the, one of the most um, compelling practices uh, to me is the idea of radical forgiveness. This idea of loving uh, your enemy and turning the other cheek and practicing uh, 77 times 7 versions of forgiveness. You just forgive over and over again. This idea of radical forgiveness, uh, it is so hard. You say, I'm going to be a person with no grudges. That resentment will not control me. Radical forgiveness. You could say, that's going to be my practice for the year. Who do I need to forgive? What am I walking around with? It is the way of Jesus. This doesn't have to be, uh, you don't have to go out trying to cast demons out of people, all right? You could just say, what grudges am I holding? Or, or um, you know, I've been reading the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and Jesus says, blessed are the meek. You say, I'm going to try, try to be meek. I'm going to try to be meek. Uh, not just acts of kindness, but acts of meekness. I'm going to be gentle with people. For me, that's what I've been thinking about. I want to be more gentle, meek. 
I don't have to uh, appear to be strong. I can be meek. That's the way of Jesus. And if you're not, if, 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 if you're just not sure at all, if you were to summarize all of it, all of the way of Jesus is ultimately just the way of love. The way of love. That you could say, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to practice the way of love over everything else. It's supreme in my life. I'm going to filter everything through that. Not, not the way of fear. Not the way of, of, of being defensive. I'm not protecting God or anyone else. This is the way of love. So if the rest of the practices, I think you should practice radical forgiveness. Join me in the practice of meekness. But if that all feels overwhelming, say, you know what? I'm going to be a person of radical love. Right? We need the same encouragement that Paul was giving the church in Colossae. Prioritize the way of Jesus over everything. Full devotion to the way. Uh, you know, this year, Katie and I, uh, remodeled and moved into a new house, and uh, we've we've loved being there. And if you want to see it, you should come to Wine and Cheese Friendsgiving uh, on November nineteenth. We're hosting in our backyard. It's going to be awesome. Uh, but uh, we've uh, we've fixed up three houses together now, and Katie has worked on dozens and dozens of homes. She's amazing. Uh, but before you start any real work on a house, before you tear it all up and uh, do plumbing and electrical and all the things. You have to check the foundation. And if you've done a lot of work on houses, you know that if the foundation isn't right, the work is in vain. If the foundation isn't right, the work is in vain. And listen, if, if supremacy or preeminence is too religious, if that language is too religious for you, then hear me. The way of Jesus is the foundation of everything we do and everything we are. And if we don't get love and humility and justice and inclusion right, if we don't get those things right, if we don't get love and humility and justice and inclusion right, then the rest of our work is in vain. The rest of our ideology is in vain. The rest of our theology is in vain. The rest of our uh, belief or unbelief is in vain if we don't get love and inclusion, justice and humility right. If the foundation isn't right, the work is in vain. Jesus isn't our mascot. We will not take the Lord's name in vain by leveraging a Christian-flavored ideology in order to forward our own power and privilege. We will not demote or diminish the radical way of Jesus. His revolution of love will be the way in which we filter our decisions, our work, our entire lives through. Because if the foundation isn't right, the work is in vain. Gather, my prayer for us today is from the great Barbara Brown Taylor. Gather, love God, love a neighbor, be a neighbor, and let us not complicate things by arguing about specifics. You know what it means to love because sometime or another you have been on the receiving end of it. Remember that knowing the right answer does not change a thing. If you actually want the world to look different the next time you go outside, start with love. Show a little or show a lot, but show some and do not forget some for yourself. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in Gather, check out our website at gatherhouston.org or visit us on Sunday at 10 a.m.